0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. Amen, brothers and sisters, you may be seated. If you're new, I hope you feel very warmly welcomed. My name is Bart Bile. I am the pastor of this church. Our children can be liberated to their time of ministry. And the rest of us are going to open up the Word of God, the inspired authoritative Word of God, to the Gospel of Luke this afternoon, Luke chapter 8. And the text will appear on the screen behind me, but as always, I encourage you to bring your Bible along and follow follow along just to be sure That it is actually the word of God being preached because it alone has the authority. We're going to read from Luke chapter 8 from verses 22 to 25. Listen to the words of the Lord. Luke chapter 8 verses 22 to 25. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water. And they obey him. You know, they say, people who have drowned and then been resuscitated, they say that drowning is actually a very euphoric way to die. Frankly, I have a hard time believing that because every fiber of my being is filled with a horror of being unable to breathe, my lungs screaming for air, finally being forced to give in to the instinctive need to open my mouth only to choke on water as I flail helplessly, sinking down, down, down. People who've actually studied drowning victims tell us there is an instinctive drowning reaction that people have in the last 20 20 to 60 seconds before succumbing. And in those last moments, panic actually overrides rational behavior. People are unable to keep their mouth above water to shout. They no longer have the air to even will themselves to wave for help. And so a person could drown in a crowded swimming pool surrounded by other people as they silently gasp for air, standing almost vertically in the water, frantically pushing their hands down laterally, trying to pull themselves up above the water frantically trying to raise their mouth to breathe and they can drown right there surrounded by a crowd of people but I'm sure all that was far from the disciples minds as they set out with Jesus pushing off from the shores of Galilee that afternoon a welcome break from the crowds after days and days of exhausting ministry lines of people coming up to Jesus far past dusk for healing for exorcisms for help from this strange prophet and this miracle worker who was walking among them and I suppose it was very likely quite a pleasant and sunny afternoon as they set out no sign in, the, in our story, in Luke's story that any of the disciples prepared for the storm that was coming had there been black clouds gathering on the horizon. I doubt they would have set out in what was basically a large open rowboat, dangerously overloaded with one Jesus, 12 disciples, probably three or four women at least among them. And I can see this boat already riding dangerously low in the water as they shove off for a pleasant afternoon on the lake. Three of the disciples, at least Peter, James, and John, are experienced fishermen who've been messing about in boats since they were boys, and I'm sure they were the ones managing the boat and directing the inexperienced rowers, clumsily trying to figure out how to move the oars on this welcome holiday exertion. And they begin, after shoving off, by helping Jesus get comfortable on the leather-covered stern in the back of the boat, and he falls asleep, almost the moment his head hits the pillow. And I imagine the 12 disciples nudging each other and chuckling. Their master, who has worked such wonders of healing and exorcism, is clearly just as human as the rest of them as he begins to snore in the back of the boat. And then the disciples focus on their task of rowing the 10 or 11 kilometers to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Really, to call Galilee a sea is very generous, no doubt dreamed up by the local tourism board. It's really a large lake, but it's a strange lake because Galilee lies about 200 meters, 700 feet below sea level. And on the eastern shore, there are quite steep mountains and a couple narrow valleys. And to this day, Galilee has this feature where suddenly cold air coming down, sweeping down from the mountains, funneled through those valleys can create storms that seem to come out of nowhere. And I imagine the experience, the more experienced Peter, James, and John looking up and seeing the dark clouds gathering on the horizon and the wind beginning to pick up on their cheek and exchanging significant glances with each other and urging the other disciples to row faster. But within minutes, the full fury of the storm is upon them. The screaming wind coming down from the mountains tears the little scrap of cloth from the mast. There's torrential rain coming in almost sideways, driven by the wind, and waves sweep right over the boat, over the knees of the rowers. And in Galilee, under these conditions, the waves can get as high as 2 meters, 6 or 7 feet Here's this dangerously overloaded boat under the best of conditions, already riding very low in the water, starting to swamp. And the disciples who have been frantically rowing to shore to race the storm are forced to stop rowing in order to bail out the water that is rapidly filling their boat, but there's not enough containers and the boat is beginning to swamp. About to sink or capsize. And the next wave could be the last. And then into the cold water, flailing, gasping, choking and then sinking, looking up and seeing the last bit of light as you sink down into the dark, dark depths. And incredibly, despite the violence of the storm that has broken on the boat and the frantic activity taking place around him, Jesus is still sound asleep in the stern, seemingly dead to the world. And the disciples near him shake Jesus awake, screaming over the wind, Master, Master, we're going to drown. What a rude awakening. What a terrifying way to regain consciousness. And yet, Luke tells us that Jesus sits up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsides, and all is calm. It's like Jesus had just reached over and yanked the plug right out of the wall. Because the wind and the waves stop. They stop instantly. They don't gradually die down as the waves become successively less choppy. Just like that, Jesus speaks a word or two, and the sea is instantly calm. One moment, the disciples are panicking in the midst of this churning violence, the elemental forces of nature about to destroy them. And then, just like that, the sun is shining, the birds are singing. And the sea is as still as glass. And I'm sure every single disciple, every single woman froze in position staring at Jesus. Their knuckles still white holding on to the sides of the boat. Asking themselves, what just happened They had seen the master wake up sit up and with two or three calm measured words rebuke the storm in mark's account all jesus says is peace be still no panic from Jesus no alarm no desperate prayer to God just this serene word of command and the storm and the wind and the waves cringe into submission like a frightened puppy. And after doing this, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them a simple question. Where is your faith? I'm here with you in the boat. I've been here this whole time. Why was everyone freaking out? Notice that no one dares to speak To answer Jesus' question, notice the disciples are still in fear, but it's a different type of terror, a completely different type of terror, not because of the threat of the storm, but the presence of the passenger who has just woken up and calmed it. Clearly, their master is no ordinary mortal. not even some kind of unusual, prophetic wonder worker. And they slowly begin to row towards the waiting, waiting shore. And in fear and amazement, they ask each other, in whispers, I'm sure, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water. And they obey him. Who is this? I want us to meditate this afternoon on the carefully considered answer the church has given to this question. We've started the series on the Nicene Creed, And I want to read for you the second article of this creed, which is going to come up on this screen here. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And what we have here is the mature reflection of the church 300 years after this story. Their carefully considered, delicately balanced answer to the most important question every disciple of Jesus has to ask himself or herself, who is this person? And I find it highly significant that the creed does not begin with me, with my situation, with my predicament, even with my need for salvation, which is how we often begin the gospel. It begins with God, the creator, and God's only son, Jesus Christ. We haven't even talked about the human predicament yet. And it's a much-needed reminder that all of reality circles and revolves around Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Not me and my problems and even my need of salvation. And the first step of repentance, the very first step of repentance is surrendering that false consciousness and orienting our lives around Jesus, like a tiny little piece of rock orbiting around a gigantic star. I came to Christ on December 17th, 2017. I was 18 years old. I started to have this dim awareness that I was separated from God. And I was walking along. I climbed out of my bedroom window at 1 o'clock in the morning. I was walking along Fraser Highway, smoking my way through a pack of cigarettes, going through the Ten Commandments, confessing my sins to God. And at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I found myself in East Clayton Park, standing across outside the fence from the elementary school. There was the swing set and the slides. I was standing under a large tree, and I thought, okay, here I am. This is the moment at which I... Surrender my life to Christ. Whatever this script is, and I remember thinking to myself, perhaps it would be appropriate to get on my knees at this point. And I thought, ah, the grass is wet, and that's like kind of weird to do in a park in the middle of the night. And I felt, as it were, a set of hands on my shoulders, forcing me to my knees, as though God was saying, "You will bow, and you will submit." And all of us have different stories of coming to Jesus, but in all those stories, if they're truly of the Holy Spirit, there is a complete surrender of ourselves in faith and allegiance to Jesus. We're not just taking him on as a kind of add-on to improve our lives, but we're reorienting ourselves around him as the center, bowing to him as the one who is supreme. You know, in the Gospels, we see the disciples initially see Jesus as a means to their own ends, something they can use to achieve the political liberation and the freedom and the power that they are looking for. But over time, as they begin to realize Jesus' true identity, who this person actually is, their eyes are opened, and they realize that Jesus is not the means to the end, he is Himself the end. He is the goal. He is the center. He is the summit. And Jesus himself is the meaning of their entire lives. He is the meaning of all human history and of the entire cosmic order. And it, it takes time for them to realize this. They're very slow to perceive, very slow to understand, very Slow to believe. Not because they're especially thick or stupid. They're no slower than any of us would have been under those circumstances. They're just grappling and kind of chewing over the significance of these strange and unsettling experiences like we have in this story. Who is this person? And as first-century Jews, they were strongly monotheistic. There is one God and only one God. And the creed they recited from Deuteronomy chapter 6 was this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it took 1,500 years to really cure the Jews of their idolatrous tendencies, but after... Punishment and exile and return, if there was one thing a Jew was thoroughly convinced of, it was that God is one. And now, over and over again in the Gospels, the disciples are seeing and hearing and experiencing things through Jesus that only God should be doing, that only God can do. And you'll see what I mean when you read Psalm 107. It'll come up on the screen, but listen to this. Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits ends. Then they cried to the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven." This was one of the psalms that Jews memorized and recited regularly and worship. And here in front of them, in the back of the boat, is Jesus performing this psalm right in front of them. And this is just one of many examples in the Gospels of a Jesus who raises the dead, which only God can do, who who forgives sins, and who can forgive sins but God alone, one who describes himself as Lord and Savior and Son of God. And it's not surprising at all that from the very beginning, the earliest Christians after the resurrection had no hesitation in worshiping Jesus as God. And yes, in those early years, they were a little fuzzy, a little unclear about what it actually meant to confess that this is the only begotten Son of God, to confess that Jesus Christ is human, he's asleep in the boat, and yet he has these divine powers of calming the storm. How can this all fit together? There was still some clarity to be had, but there was no hesitation from the very beginning in offering Worship and prayer and total allegiance to Christ as the only Son of God. And now, 300 years later, we have the Nicene Creed, this this summary and distillation of the entire biblical witness about Jesus. It wasn't as though these two or 300 bishops gathered together and voted Jesus in as the Son of God and announced this as a political decision to a shocked church they were just expressing how the church was already worshiping and singing and praying to Jesus. And over the centuries, there had been different explanations, different interpretations offered as to the identity of Jesus. But one by one, these competing interpretations were rejected because they would take one text and one side of the story but exclude the riches of the full witness to Jesus. And one very powerful false option was the one suggested by Arius, who was a priest from Alexandria at this time. And he suggested that Jesus was a creature, the highest of all creatures, far above anyone else, but nevertheless, on our side of the creator-creature divide. And God had created Jesus as a kind of intermediary so that God, the creator God, could hold himself apart from his world and allow Jesus, his created son, to be the one who would relate with humanity. And Arius and his followers, their slogan, their famous slogan was, there was a time when the son of God was not. There was a time when the son did not exist and then God created him as the highest of beings and Jesus began to be. And in the words of the creed, these deceptively simple words, carefully weighted, carefully balanced words, they're meant to affirm as clearly and robustly as possible that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God, of one being with the Father, fully worthy to be worshipped and glorified. So let's take just a few moments to parse through this section of the creed, and we're only barely going to scratch the surface today. We begin by confessing that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Notice, one Lord. We're not talking about two different people, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, as though there was some kind of divine son who kind of climbed inside this human being and like operated and controlled him. This is one single person that we're talking about. And Jesus of Nazareth, this first century Jewish carpenter who walked around in Galilee is fully and completely identified with the eternal son of God. This is one person we're talking about. The only begotten son of God. You might recognize that description from John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A simple verse through which so many people have found salvation, and yet hidden in that verse is a profound mystery. Who is this only begotten Son of God? And what does it mean to describe the Son as begotten? And the Creed is very careful to say that the Son is begotten, not made. Arius was wrong. Jesus is not a creature. He is uncreated. And whatever the creed means by Jesus being begotten, we should not bring in crude physical ideas of sexual intercourse and physical birth, as Muslims often believe when they encounter the idea of Jesus being the Son of God. That's not what we're saying. A God is not like the pagan gods who descends to earth and has some kind of human consort. Nothing like that. There was never a time when the Son of God began to be. Jesus is eternal and without beginning. In the beginning was the Word, John 1. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And yet, the Bible talks about the son being begotten from the father. Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. I've become your father. And in that today, we're talking about the eternal, timeless today of God who does not exist inside of time like we creatures do. God exists where the words before and after have no relevance. I know we're stretching our brains even trying to comprehend this because all this gets filtered through our human experience. And it's almost impossible to speak of Jesus without accidentally saying something wrong because we're so small and we're so limited. We can say this. And when we talk about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, we're saying that from all eternity, the Father is communicating his divine essence to the Son. Here's a crude illustration. Imagine a lake flowing into a river. Except this lake has always existed, and so has the river. And just as the lake continuously eternally flows into the river as its source, so the divine life of the Father, eternally, continuously, without beginning, outside of time, flows into the Son. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here is the Father, outside of time, fully, perfectly, completely communicating his divine life, his divine nature to the Son, without reserve, holding nothing back, so that we can say that there are no characteristics of the Father that the Son does not share completely. There are no characteristics of the Father that the Son does not share completely, with one exception, the Father is the Father and the Son is The son. The father eternally begets. The son is eternally generated. Apart from that, they share all characteristics. And that's why in the Nicene Creed we confess that Jesus is God from God and light from light. And the son may proceed from the father as his source, but in no way is inferior to the father. Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, light from light, and the exact representation of his being. Now, as human beings, we image God, but in a very limited Miniaturized, incomplete way. Jesus is the perfect, complete, full, exact image of the Father. And so Jesus could say to his disciples, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. As St. Irenaeus expressed it, the Father is the invisible of the Son and the Son is the visible of the Father. And what that means is that when we look into the face of Jesus, we are looking into the face of God. Do you understand? In the Gospels, the Creator Himself is present among His people. Not a creature... Like ourselves, on this side of the infinite gulf between the creator and the creature, the Son of God, the perfect imprint of his Father, the complete radiance of the divine glory, walked among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to be very, very clear in our minds that Christ the Son is in no way inferior to the Father or subordinate to him. The Son and the Father are equal in every way, sharing one nature, one essence, one will, one power, and one glory. I know the Gospels do describe the incarnate Son of God as a human being obeying the Father, as the true Israel... Within the Trinity, there is no hierarchy. There is no authority or submission within the Trinity. And if there was, Jesus would not be quite fully God. And through this perfect, infinitely full Son of God, all things were created. Colossians 1, for in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the word of God. By whom the Father spoke all things into being, and by whom the Father continuously preserves and upholds all of reality. And circling back now to our story in Luke, we see the realization slowly dawning on the disciples that Jesus does not have a human, an ordinary human relationship with creation. When Jesus calms the storm... The creation is recognizing its creator. The disciples, it turns out, are sitting in this little boat with no ordinary human beings. With No ordinary human being. They are finite, helpless creatures, unable to save themselves from death. And they're sitting in the boat with the infinite creator and Lord of life. I want to share with you a painting by the Chinese artist He Qi, H-E-Q-I. A painting called Peace Be Still of Jesus in the boat with his disciples. He Qi is a contemporary artist. He's about 70 years old now. He, his first painting was of Chairman Mao. He went through the Cultural Revolution doing forced labor in the fields. He became a Christian and began to paint these biblical scenes based on uh, Chinese folklore mixed with contemporary art. And in this picture, we see Jesus as powerful and serene, calming the chaos below him, with his word creating order and shalom among the rowing disciples. And the lesson of this painting and of this text really is that in the face of death only God can save us. In the face of death only God can save us. Who is this person in the boat? And for those who were in the boat, in the storm, this was a profoundly existential question. And in the face of death, it's the only question that matters. Who is this person? The only question that matters. I suppose for all of us, death feels far away and distant and unreal, just like it did for the disciples when they climbed into that boat on a sunny afternoon. But it is coming for all of us. And the question is who can save us in the face of death? And Jesus is asking all of us this afternoon where is your faith? Where is your faith? Because the phrase that happens again and again in the Creed is I believe, I believe, I believe. And it's meant as more than intellectual assent, more than simply assembling some philosophical building blocks to build a, a worldview or construct an academic career. It's the deepest existential thing we can do to say, I believe. And I can't help but thinking of the disciple Thomas who was present in this boat, the one we wrongly call Doubting Thomas, who stood before the crucified and resurrected Jesus and fell on his knees and said, My Lord and my God. He was not saying that merely as a matter of intellectual assent. He was not just assembling the philosophical building blocks for his worldview. For Thomas and the other disciples and all of us today who confess, I believe we are saying Jesus is the Son of God. He is not only the Lord, he is my Lord. He is not only the Savior, he is my Savior. And we are all summoned this afternoon to surrender our entire beings in trust and allegiance to the only one who can save us in the face of death, the only one who can control and command the forces of chaos that threaten to dissolve us. Our only hope is to bow down in worship and faith and allegiance to the one who possesses the name above every name the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, eternal Father of the eternal Son, we worship and magnify you for sending your only begotten Son to this world. Not some created intermediary, not some archangel or demigod. You sent your son, your perfect imprint, the exact radiance of your glory to become one of us, to live among us, to be crucified for us. And you have summoned us into fellowship with yourself through this glorious son. Lord, we bow before him and we ask that you would help us to find our own faith in deeper and more profound ways that as we face our own weakness and our own helplessness and our own impending death we would turn in full trust to the one who is among us our only hope jesus your son in whose mighty name we pray amen This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF-Georgia.org. Thanks for listening.